Okay, well, last week we looked at Matthew 19, 12 through 29. <clears throat> we saw that children are not to be forbidden to come to Jesus. Uh, we looked at the uh, the young rich ruler who came to Jesus and the encounter Jesus had with him and this issue of goodness and what it means to be good. Um, different ways the word good is used throughout the scriptures and perfect is used throughout the scriptures and what Jesus meant by good in this passage and how he's trying to correct the young rich ruler's understanding of good and uh, we saw his idolatry of riches and um, we also talked about the regeneration of the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and the new earth and uh, about how Peter said that we're not like the young which will be given away everything uh, to be to follow you. <coughs> okay, well this this week we're going to start in verse 30 of Matthew 19 because that really ties into this parable in Matthew 20. Remember, there was no chapter and verse divisions in the original uh, language and the original manuscripts, and uh, I really think that verse 30 and verse 16 sort of book uh, bookend this parable in Matthew 20 and are trying to bring forth the main point uh, that Jesus is making. Now, Jesus, uh, the first uh, people Jesus chose to be his disciples were the 12 apostles. Okay, So they were the first. So let's start in verse 30. But many who are first will be last and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. <coughs> Excuse me who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them to his vineyard, into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. And he went out about the sixth and ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? He said to him, Because no one hired us. <clears throat> he said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. When those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received denarius. When the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received each a denarius. When they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, these last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am going, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first, and the first last, for many are called, but few chosen. Okay, and I really think that verse 30 and verse 16 <clears throat> bookmark what is really going on here. <clears throat> There's been, I, you know, I, this is the only time this occurs in the Gospels, this parable. It's not in Mark, it's not in Luke, it's not in John. And, um, you know, there's, people can read a lot of things in the parables, and I even looked through a lot of commentaries uh, this week to see what other people were thinking it says, and there's so many different interpretations of this, of this parable. Uh, first, before we get into the meaning of it, let's let's talk about some of the uh, specifics here. Uh, in the Jewish world, the day started at 6 a.m. Okay, so whenever you're reading the third hour, fifth hour, you, you have to have that in mind. 
Okay, so if 6 a.m. is the beginning of the day, what is the third hour? 9 a.m. Okay, the fifth hour? 11 a.m. And the sixth hour is 12, and the ninth hour is 3 p.m. And then the 11th hour is 5 p.m. You see, the Jewish workday was from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. 12-hour workday. It's a pretty long workday. Um, and so you have to have that in mind when you're when you're reading through this. <coughs> so many who are first will be last, and the last first. And uh, so, who were the first people that Jesus brought the gospel to? The Jewish people. Okay. And who are the the last type of people who the gospel is brought to? Gentiles. Yes. And that's really what I think is being talked about here: is that <coughs> the Jew, the Jews. Um, where the gospel is brought to them first, and uh, you see the complaining in this parable uh, that we you know we we've been here for a long time working all these hours. These guys just came in. You're giving them the same amount, and you see this complaining of the Jews all throughout the New Testament, the early church. Uh, you see it in Romans. Paul addresses it in Romans two. He addresses it in Romans nine. Uh, in Romans eleven, he says they were cut off because of unbelief, and so uh, you see this being addressed. You see it in Acts. And when Paul, uh, when Peter first went to Cornelius, and people heard about it, the first thing they said was, well, let's just go look at it and see what they said. The first thing they said, uh, it wasn't rejoicing, uh, so to speak. It was, um, we're in Acts chapter 11. <clears throat> and um, in verse 1, it says, Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard the Gentiles had also received the word of God, when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcised contended with him, saying, You went into uncircum you went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. And then Peter began to explain himself. And then eventually they it says at the uh, in verse eighteen that they glorify God because Gentiles uh, were granted repentance to life as well. Uh, but you see the first uh, reaction to it was one of complaining. You know, why are you going to the Gentiles? Uh, even though Jesus said to go to Jerusalem today as Samaria and to the ends of the earth, preaching, preaching the gospel. Um, and so, you see the, the Jewish mindset here. I think that's what Jesus is addressing here. Now, I'm not 100% sure about that, but I think that's what he's referring to. That the many who are the first will be last, and the last will be first. And uh, the Gentiles, even though they don't have the oracles of God, even though they don't have the fathers, even though they don't have the history with God that the Jewish people have, uh, even though they never had the temple, they never had these things that the Jewish people had. They didn't work in the heat of day, which literally these other people, they worked in the middle of the day when it was the hottest, the hardest work. They did the most work. And the Gentiles come in later on and get in just at the last time. They're working in the cool of the day, not doing much work, and getting the same amount of money. doesn't make much sense to the Jewish people. And so they did all this work. They went through all these things, and now the Gentiles are coming in. And you see even in Acts 15 that they want the Gentiles to be circumcised in order to be saved. And so the, the Gentiles are going to get the same reward, the kingdom of heaven, as the Jewish people are going to get, those who believe. Um, but many who are first, Jewish people, will be last. And I don't think that means they're going to have like the worst rewards. I don't think it means they're going to be outside the kingdom. We see that in Romans 11. Many were cut off because of unbelief. And the Gentiles are coming in, and one of the reasons that God is uh, saving Gentiles is to provoke the Jewish people to jealousy. And so he wants them to say, look, I'm, I'm going to give them the same thing. Don't respond grudgingly. Don't respond in complaining about it. 
respond and say, well, God's given, like the people did in Acts 11. Well, praise God. He's given salvation to the Gentiles as well. The man complained. It also reminds me of the story of the prodigal son, where the prodigal son came back. And what did the older son do? He complained about it. And uh, if you were to put, I, I can imagine the, the, the facial expression, the body language of some of the Jewish people who would say, well, this son came back to me. I wouldn't receive him back. I wouldn't be having a party with him. I wouldn't be looking off in the distance for him to come back. I, I would probably turn my face to him and disown him. And, uh, but, but God's not like that. He wants all to be saved. He wants none to perish. He wants all to come to a knowledge of the truth. So many who are first, the Jewish people, will be last, and the last will be first. You know, the, the least in the kingdom of God are those who are thrown out. They're in the kingdom of God, but they're going to hell. And so you see that, now this doesn't mean that, see we can't take parables too far. It doesn't mean that uh, everyone who's, you know, someone who's given their whole life to Christ and has worked their whole life for Christ and someone who got saved at the last minute is going to have the same rewards in the kingdom. We have to balance that with all the scripture here, but they will still be in the kingdom of heaven. For example, the thief on the cross. You know, he, he didn't do any of the stuff that we're doing. He never had a chance to. But yet he will still be in the kingdom. He'll still get that denarius. Even though he came in at the last second, he'll get that denarius. And so it's not a matter of how much he's done. It's a matter of God's goodness. And the fact is, the people in this, this parable, they agree to denarius. And who are they to judge the landowner, who is God in this parable, for giving someone else another blessing they don't deserve? So they didn't deserve that denarius, but he gave it to them anyway. And to complain against God's blessing is to complain against God's riches toward other people or towards someone who's been really wicked. You know, we'll be in the open air and I'll hear someone say, so you're telling me that if someone is a mass murderer and a rapist and all these things, and if he goes to prison, he's on death row for five years, and he repents, and that he's going to be in the kingdom, and that I'm not, and I've only lied? Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's, exa- that's exactly what they're, they're saying. They're, they're thinking, well, he doesn't deserve Well, he, no, he doesn't. That's what you're not getting. Either do you. None of us deserve it. And that's what he's. That's really what Jesus is trying to push home to his disciples here. Yes, this young man is not going to enter the kingdom because he went away sorrowful with a great position. Yes, you've given away everything to come and follow me, but yet you still don't deserve it. You still don't deserve it. No matter how much you give away to serve Jesus Christ, you still don't deserve it. And we'll see uh, next week that a couple of them still didn't get it. <coughs> Having their mother come and ask Jesus something they, sh- they just shouldn't have been asking them. Uh, but what, one thing I want to focus on uh, for most of the rest of the time here is verse 16. Um, this is a verse that many uh, Calvinists will use to back up their teaching, but I think even the verse itself, if you examine it, does not back up what they say. Um, it says, so the last will be first and the first last, for many are called, but few chosen. So there's a distinction between those who are called and those who are chosen. And in, you know, in Calvinist soteriology, there is no distinction between a, some people who are called or drawn and people who are chosen. In fact, a lot of times they appeal to John chapter 6, and they'll quote uh, one verse from it. Um, in John 6 and verse 44... No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So they'll say in verse 44, All who are drawn by the Father will be raised up at the last day. 
Of course, verse 45 says, "Is written in the prophets that they all shall be taught by God. There's the drawing. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned, there's a submission from the Father, comes to me. There's even a distinction in that passage. So, to have a distinction here between the people who are called and those who are chosen, even that doesn't fit uh, Calvinistic soteriology, their doctrine of salvation. The word called here uh, is, is kletos, and it means invited. Invited. So you could very easily say, for many are invited. And if you invite someone to a wedding, um, you may call them on the phone. You may make a call to them through a uh, card in the mail. Uh, you may make a call to them through email or you know some other medium. But you're making an invitation to them. And in this parable, you see the uh, owner of the vineyard going out into where people are there to wait for labor, and he's making an invitation to them. He's calling to them. So that, that would actually be a great, uh, great translation of Kletos here, invitation, because that's exactly what's going on. And in one of the other passages we see, these same two words being used is Matthew twenty-two fourteen. Now, we're not going to get into that today, but I just wanted to bring it to your attention. And Kletos being translated as invitation there would work perfectly as well. And many people who are invited there do not come. They reject the invitation. So many are invited, but few chosen. Now this word chosen here, does it mean that God sent out invitations to people, but then only chose some who he sent invitations to, to come? That really wouldn't make much sense, would it? Why would I send you an invitation if I did not want you to come? Why would I send you an invitation to a wedding, Let's just say uh, Malachi's going to get married in 10 years. Let's say 10 years from now, Malachi gets married. I sent an invitation to everybody. And then I call up Brother John and say, John, you know, I sent you an invitation, but I really don't want you to come. I'm sorry. You're not one of the chosen ones. Wouldn't make much sense. And so that's not what's going on here. And what I want to do now, um, there's a study my friend Jox Moore did. He's a friend of mine. Uh, he lives in England. Does a great study here on the Greek word eklektos, which is what is translated as chosen here. And what I want to do is go through this word a little bit uh, in the Old Testament Greek Septuagint and in the New Testament. And I'm sure we've, we've talked about this many times before, so I want to base it upon this, that, that many of the New Testament early church believers, the translation of the Old Testament they use was the Greek translation. Most of the time. Not all the time. Sometimes you, you see quotes in the New Testament, it's actually quoting from the Hebrew. It's more accurate to the Hebrew we have. But most of the time, they're quoting from the Septuagint, and all the early church fathers that I'm aware of quote from the Septuagint. They never quote from the Hebrew that I'm aware of, because they were a Greek-speaking people. Okay, So with that in mind, I want to go to Septuagint, which is what they were working off of, and I want you to see how this word is translated in our Bibles, which are based upon the Hebrew, and you'll see for yourself how the word eklektos is used in the Old Testament, and that should be our basis, at least part of our basis, for how we use that same word in our Greek New Testament, how we should translate it, how we should view it. Because as I have right here, I have all the times it was used in the New Testament, the Greek word eklektos. I have uh, three pages of it here. And um, we'll see that most times it's translated as chosen or elect. And what I'm going to propose to you is that's not necessarily the best translation every single time. There are times it could mean chosen in the sense of picked, but it can also mean other things. So let's, let's look at some of these uh, times in the Old Testament 
And if you want, you can follow in your, in your, your New King James Bible, and we're going to see what it says. In fact, I'm, I'm going to call on certain people to read it. So um, who wants to read Genesis 23.6? Raise your hand. So I'm going to pick that out. Okay, Brother Kevin. 23.6. 23.6. Uh, don't read it yet. Genesis 41.2. Brother John, take that one. Uh, Genesis 41.4. Brother Sean. And you'll have, uh, actually, once you, Brother John, read verse 2, 4, and 5, and 7 from Genesis 41, okay? 2, 4, 5, and 7. Yes. Uh, Brother Sean, go to Exodus 14, 7. Uh, let's see here. And then we'll, we'll just go from there. We'll start with that. Okay. Uh, so in Genesis 23, 6, it's Brother, Brother Kevin there. Okay. And the Greeks of Tuigen, it's the Greek word eklektos. Okay, so go ahead, brother. What does it read there? Hear us, my lord. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you his burial place, that you may bury your dead. Okay, so the Greek word eklektos there would be choicest. Okay, now this is obviously this is translated from the Hebrew, what we have right here, but that's right where the Greek word eklektos would appear in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. So you see how it's translated there, as choicest. Now what is choicest of burial places, what does that mean? Does it mean, I mean obviously the guy's picking it, but what does it mean? The best. The best. The best. Okay. Uh, Genesis chapter 41. Uh, brother, read verse 2 first if you don't mind. Suddenly there came up out of the river seven cows, fine looking and fat and they fed in the meadow verse 4 and the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven fine looking and fat cows so Pharaoh awoke what's that right there okay so verse 2 and verse 4 we see is fine looking and fat the, not fat in the sense of chubby but fat in the sense of meat good meat choice meat that's what it's talking about here so uh, we see the word eklektos being used in choice or good, distinguishing between good and bad once again. Go ahead with uh, verse 5, brother, and 7. He slept and dreamed a second time, and suddenly seven heads of grain came up on one stalk, plump and good. And the seven thin heads, verse 7, seven thin heads devoured the seven plump and full heads, so Pharaoh awoke, and indeed it was a so plump and full, talking about heads of grain now, plump and full. Once again, the Greek eklektos. And so you have this being used these times already. Uh, and then um, Exodus 14 and verse 7, Brother Sean. Uh, also he took 600 choice chariots, and all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. Choice chariots. Now, obviously, in every all these situations, I mean, well, not everyone, but the ones with the cows and the grain are not talking about picking anything there, just describing a certain thing. But in the chariots, you're picking something. In the burial places, you're picking something. But it, talking about the choice things, the best things, uh, when it comes to comparing them to others. Um, Brother Kevin, can you uh, look up Exodus 30, 23? Um, Brother John... Um, Exodus eleven twenty. Oh, sorry, no, Numbers eleven twenty-eight. Is Daniel here? Uh, Daniel, can you look up Deuteronomy twelve eleven? Um, Brother Sean, did I give you one yet? Okay, Number uh, Judges 
Um, well, not Judges. Yeah, Judges 20, verse 15 and verse 34. Judges 20, 15 and 34. And we're not going to go through all these. There's actually 75 times this word appears in the Old Testament. And I'll, I'll get to it here in a minute uh, how many times it's translated as cho- choice, as I'm chosen, and how many times it's translated as other things. So, uh, brother, go ahead. Sorry, what is the Hebrew word for this? Uh, the Hebrew word um, is, let's see here, uh, Bakar, Bakir, Bakur. Barar and Midbakar. Um, and if you look in a Hebrew lexicon, uh, you'll see that it can be used in the same way eklektos can be used. It's like, this, it's like the perfect word for eklektos. It can mean chose, it can mean choice, it can mean excellent. Those are the things it can mean. Okay, It can also mean, like, I'm going to talk about young men. You know, men in their prime. We're talking about that as well, too. Okay, uh... Brother Kevin, Exodus uh, 30 and verse 23. Also take for yourself quality spices, 500 shekels of liquid myrrh, half as much sweet-smelling cinnamon, 250 shekels. Qual- 250 shekels of sweet-smelling cane. So quality, mm-hmm. quality myrrh. So we're talking about quality here. Uh, who had numbers 1120? Was that your brother, John? Yeah. Okay. So Joshua the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, one of his choice men, answered and said, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. Yeah, so he's a choice man. Uh, the King James translated as young men. So it was talking about a man who was in his prime here. Very strong, very sturdy. Okay, uh, Brother Daniel, Deuteronomy chapter 12, I believe you had, verse 11. Then there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, and all your choice offerings which you vow to the Lord. Choice offerings. The best offerings. The best of offering you're offering to the Lord. Um, Judges chapter 20. Go to Sean. Verse 15. And from their cities at that same time the children of Benjamin numbered 26,000 men who drew the sword besides the inhabitants of Gibeah who numbered 700 select men. Verse 34, and 10,000 select men from all Israel came against Gibeah, and the battle was fierce. But the Benjamite, Benjaminites did not know the disaster of the planet. So select men is how it's being translated now. And so you see this over and over again, and if you want to look at this booklet when we're done, I'm not going to go through all of them. It'll take a long time to go through all of them. There's, like I said, 75 references. And there's even more if we were to include the Apocrypha, which is originally in the Septuagint. <laughs> yeah, so there's a, actually, I think, a hundred if you include the Apocrypha. Um, and there's a guy named Robert Young, who was a self-taught uh, guy when it comes to learning many languages. And you may know him from Young's literal translation. He's the actual translator and author of that. And Young's literal translation. And uh, he also did an analytical concordance of the Bible. So a concordance of the Bible, which tells you every time a word is found in the Bible... He tells you that, and in his analytical concordance of the Bible, he said this. He said, uh, when you see the word chosen, read choice one. That's what he said to read. When you see the word elect, read choice one. So when he was, you know, his translation was uh, mid-1900s, I mean mid-1800s, mid-19th century, even he understood uh, that eklektos means choice one, it means pressure. It doesn't necessarily mean chosen like God is picking from eternity past, heaven, hell, heaven, hell, heaven, hell. 
Okay. Uh, so you see these times, and so according to um, Jock's uh, study here, and I've read it through, and I agree with it. Uh, what I've what I've analyzed of it, quality when it's when it's, in the seventy-five times we find this word in the Old Testament, it means quality or choice or you know the best sixty-two times. Uh, it means chosen eight times. It means elect four times and choose one time. Okay, so you can see the balance of powers here. That that the at most of the times it means choice, select, excellent, quality. That's what it means most of the times. And so with that in mind, if we come to the the New Testament with that in mind, which is what the early believers would have had in mind, as they read the Old Testament, and as they heard the apostles' teaching, we can see that many are invited, but few are distinguished. Or few are, that's another way that can be translated, distinguished. Or fewer choice, fewer excellent. Okay? So there's a distinction between the two. And so God is not deciding who is that chosen one or not. That person decides for themselves whether they're going to be part of the excellent, part of the choice, part of the distinguished. Now, how do you become part of the choice, the distinguished, the excellent? Yes. Yeah, making yourself last. Yes. Yes. Humbling yourself. Being a servant. And who was the greatest servant of all? Yeah. He said, Do as I have done to you. You know, I've I've washed your feet so you should do to each other. And being in him is how we become part of the chosen. How we become part of the excellent, part of the obviously there's conditions for becoming in him and for staying in him. Uh, but that's how you become one of the chosen ones. And so with these things in mind, I let's let's look through some of the uh, other New Testament passages. I'm not gonna go through any of the ones that are in Matthew, because we'll go through them eventually. Sorry to interrupt you, go ahead. God, God is making a choice here though. At the end he's making his choice of the choice He's separating and sending his angels out to the you know, gathering the good. He's separating the angels and separating the good from the bad. So there is a choice that's coming. Yeah, that's but it's not... I mean, I mean, look at it in the situations of the Old Testament. There is a choice, too, but he's, you're picking the choicest. Okay? So there's a distinguishing between them. So yes, God is making a choice, but he's not arbitrarily making a choice. With no basis. Yeah, without any kind of basis. And that's that's what Calvinism would pretend this means. Every time you see the word chosen, New Testament, or left in New Testament, they impose upon that someone who God picked arbitrarily eternity past. But that that's not what we see in the Old Testament. It's not what we see in the New Testament. So we're not saying God's sovereignty is diminished at all. Yeah, God's sovereignty is that God is the final authority in all things. It does not mean that God micromanages or controls all things. Yeah, God doesn't control your will, doesn't control how you decide things. Uh, he, he does influence. He doesn't control how you do things. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's what he's chosen to do. Out of his sovereignty, he's chosen to select those who will choose him. Those who will humble themselves. Those who will be last. Um, those who will abide in him. Draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. Yeah, so those are the ones he has chosen to pick. And so we see things, um, let's see here. And just to kind of bolster this claim that uh, 
that God is not arbitrarily picking and choosing people. I'm going to look at some scriptures where klektos is used, where it couldn't possibly mean picking and choosing arbitrarily, at least not from my point of view. 1 Timothy chapter 5 uh, and verse 21. It says, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels, that's the word eclectos right there, that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Now, if we give this uh, Greek word eclectos here, translated elect, the Calvinistic understanding that God is picking and choosing arbitrarily, then basically what it's saying is that God picked certain angels to fall and certain angels not to fall. Okay, because... Uh, that's what it's saying here. The elect angels. There's some angels who are elect. They're choice angels. You could also say they're the good angels. The ones that haven't fallen. The choicest of angels. The excellent angels. But are they choice and excellent? Are they elect because God picked and chose arbitrarily? Okay, you're going to fall with Satan. I'm, of course, I picked Satan to fall too. And the rest of you are not going to fall and therefore you're going to be my elect angels. Is that what he's saying here? I don't think so. And so I think this verse uh, even more bolsters the claim that I'm trying to make to you that um, the word eclectos in the New Testament does not always mean chosen in the sense that God is arbitrarily picking and choosing. Do they believe that? I'm not sure. Well, if, if they're being consistent, they do. And if you read Calvin's writings, it's exactly what he would say. That God predetermined the fall and everything. I don't have those quotes with me, but I have tons of them at home. And a document I can share with people. <clears throat> but um, that's what they would have to say if they're going to be consistent. It's the same thing. It's like using the word sarks. If they're going to be, say the sarks means sinful nature, they have to go to First John to say, well, it means sinful nature for Jesus, too. You can't have it one way or the other. You've got to have it. You have to be consistent throughout the scripture on this thing. Okay, so I, I think that's one verse. Another verse we can go to is, um, let's see here. First Peter, yeah, chapter two, and verse four. That's the next one I was going to go to. It says in the verse uh, four, coming to him, talking about Jesus there, as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. So you have this word chosen here, the word eclectos, and it's chosen here. Now, are, are we going to say that, Jesus, that God said, well, I'm going to pick Jesus, but not pick these people. There's no one else to pick from. So this can't even mean picking and choosing here. has to mean, I mean, he says precious, uh, but sometimes when you're using adjectives to describe something, you'll use different adjectives that mean basically the same thing to describe that person. And he's, he's giving the opposite of people who rejected him. So he is a choice person by God. He's precious in God's sight. He's excellent in God's sight. Even though men reject him and despise him and consider him not worthy, he's choice and precious and excellent to God. Jesus Christ is that choice one. That excellent one. That precious one. And so this is another example where I think he can't be saying uh, picking and choosing as if God is picking and choosing arbitrarily uh, these things. And so those are, those are there's a couple examples there. Uh, verse 6 and verse 9 uh, are going to repeat the same thing. Verse 6, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. 
and he who believes in him will by no means be put to shame. And so you see that again in verse 6, talking about Jesus again. <coughs> and then in verse 9, talking about us now, those who are in him, those who have been obedient to the word. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so you have a chosen generation. Does that mean that God picked and chose a certain people to be a part of this generation from eternity past arbitrarily? No. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a special people. You see these kind of adjectives being used here. Common sense in my mind would say us here must mean choice generation or excellent generation. Because these are the ones who have chosen to follow Jesus Christ. These are the ones who have chosen to allow him to be the chief cornerstone and not reject him but they become living stones that are built upon that chief cornerstone. No, that's not a us there. No. That's a different word there. I'm <coughs> not sure what that word is. But uh, uh, the point is that he's using these... You see, that that's the point to prove here, that he's calling them precious here. That's the point he's making here. That they are special to him. They are precious to him. Because they've chosen to submit to that cornerstone, to, to submit to that one who came and shed his blood for them, and they can be living stones and not reject him like other men did and be part of this chosen generation, the generation who has been obedient to the word, not disobedient to the word, those who at the end of verse 8 is talking about. And so you see it there. Okay, so as I go through this, and I, I, I'm trying to... Uh, prove to you why this word eklektosh should mean something completely different, um, the question becomes, if we were to, I mean, this word can mean chosen, but it's not mainly used that way in the Old Testament. What word would we use uh, to define picked out or chosen in that sense, where, where their person is being picked out of a group, not necessarily choice or excellent in that sense, uh, but chose in the sense of picked out. Uh, uh, well, if we go to the book of Acts, I think we'll see one example here. Okay, in Acts 15... <laughs> After the Jerusalem Council had decided what they're going to do about the Gentiles, they decided to send Paul and Barnabas back uh, to the, the church. And um, it says in verse 22, Then it pleased the apostles and elders of the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who is also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. Now the word used here for chosen is not a klektos, it's a kloge. Okay, and then you see it said again in verse uh, 25. It is actually in the letter that was sent from the church in Jerusalem to the, the church, to the brethren who are in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, the Gentiles, Gentile brethren. It seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. So they're choosing men to send along with Barnabas and Paul to go to these Gentile churches, the Gentile brethren, to deliver this letter to see what is going, activity is going on there. So that's a completely different word being used there. Not a klektos, 
And you can see in this, this uh, context, it does mean chose in the sense of picked out. It doesn't mean chose in the sense of choice or excellent or precious, but chose in the sense of picked out. Now, I forgot to, forgot to write down this reference here, but there's another passage, I think it's maybe in Romans 1 here, talking about Paul, how he was uh, chosen to go to the Gentiles here. That's what it is. Yeah, I think you got it. That's ringing a bell on my head here. Yes. That is a cloge too. And so that's the same word used in Acts 15, in verse 22 and verse 25. He is a chosen vessel of God to bear his name before the Gentiles. So God has chosen Paul, Saul at this point, to go to the Gentiles and be an apostle to the Gentiles. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that even this doesn't mean that he was forced to go or that he was forced to be an apostate to Gentiles. Just like in Acts 15, 22, 25, it doesn't mean those people who they chose out were forced, were dragged, were made to go to Gentile brethren who Paul and Barnabas were, uh, were preaching to. Uh, in fact, um, when Paul one time is recounting uh, his, uh, his conversion experience, he says in Acts chapter 26, before King Agrippa, he says in Acts 26, 19, Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. And so he was obedient to God. So even in those senses where it does mean chosen, picked out, because God did choose, he did pick out for himself, Paul, to be the apostles of Gentiles. He was picked out. But even in that situation, he's not forcing Paul to be the Apostle Gentiles. He was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Now, if Paul could have been disobedient to heavenly vision, and we talked about this before, he would have walked around blind for the rest of his life, probably, as a chastiser from God, remembering the things he saw on the road to Damascus, remembering all this influence God brought into his life to get him to be obedient to the heavenly vision. But there was no force implied there. And the same thing in Acts 15, there's no force implied there uh, when these brethren are chosen from the church in Jerusalem and sent to the brethren who are the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. So they weren't forced to go either. And so even when the scriptures do talk about someone being chosen, being picked out in that sense, it doesn't always mean, uh, it doesn't mean forced or made to go. Okay? So going back to Matthew 18 now, I think what we can see here, or Matthew 20, I'm sorry, we can see here is that um, the point is not everyone who's part of the first, which I think are referring to the Jews here, not everyone who are part of the first are going to be part of those who are chosen, part of those who are choice, part of those who are excellent. And that's part of the problem the Jews had. When Christ came and brought his gospel, when the the, the uh, apostles brought the gospel, and Paul brought the gospel, this was part of the problem they were having. That just because they were Jews, they were Abraham's part of Abraham's seeds, they were his descendants, that they deserved to be in the kingdom. And just because these workers began work at the beginning does not mean they deserve the same 
wage per hour than those who got in at the last hour. But they, but they got what God agreed to give them. And what did God promise to the Jewish people? Inheritance. What inheritance is that? Land. Yeah, the promised land. But many of them were falling short of this inheritance. They sought it not by faith, but by works. Not the works that God has laid out for them to do, but the works they chose to do. And so they were seeking it the wrong way. And many of them were complaining that Gentiles were getting saved. I mean, picture this for a second. You're uh, a Jewish person. You have all these promises, all this history with Yahweh, all this history with Jehovah, God, where you've done all these things for your people. I mean, just think about the Red Sea, just that itself. I mean, uh, just the parting of the water and walking through on dry land. is amazing in itself. Uh, all the ten plagues in Egypt, delivering the promised land to them. Um, all these things, and, and now all of a sudden these wicked sinners who are doing things that Jewish people would never even think about doing are now being led into the kingdom. They're going to have the same inheritance as me? Didn't have to have this history? Weren't raised in the faith? And so they're having a real problem with this. And that's exactly what I think uh, Jesus is addressing here. In fact, a lot of the parables we're going to read through I think are focused on the same topic about these Jews and Gentiles. And see, they reject the chief cornerstone. They reject the elect one, the seed of Abraham, by which they can become part of the seed of Abraham. Because the, the promise to the seeds, the descendants of Abraham, was always conditional. And they didn't meet the conditions. But Jesus did meet the conditions. He completely obeyed God. And therefore, he is the one they must be in, must be part of that seed, in order to be part, uh, get the inheritance that they want to have. So that, that's what I believe Matthew 20 is referring to. There's people who I've read who said that they believe that uh, the first hour was when you know John the Baptist preached the gospel. The third hour is when Jesus preached the gospel. The sixth and ninth hour is when the apostles preached the gospel to the Jews. And then the eleventh hour is when the Gentiles get to hear the gospel. And so I'm not so sure I would read that much into it. Um, people who have said that as well, I think Adam Clark said that. Uh, I don't think I would read that much into it. I think if you keep in mind verse 30... Of Matthew 19 and verse 16 of Matthew 20, interpreted properly, translated properly, you'll get the the overall meaning Jesus is trying to give us in Matthew 20. Okay, um, and so we we could go deeper with this um, chosen thing, maybe at a different time. We'll just do a whole. I mean, I have a lot of verses here, but I, I don't I don't think it's necessary to understand this parable to go through all these verses on chosen. Uh, but I, I think. At least for today, I have sufficiently proven that in the Old Testament it was rarely used in that sense. It was mostly used, uh, probably about 80 or 90 percent of the time, used in the choice, excellent, and that's that's really what would fit this context better. The picked out arbitrarily thing that Calvinists try to say are just picking out period, as Jesus picked out. I mean, God picked out Paul, and the Jerusalem leaders picked out the certain people to go to Gentile believers. I don't even think that fits here. Okay, so even if we're throwing aside the Calvinistic arbitrarily choosing, we're, we're going to the Matthew 15 choosing, or the uh, I'm sorry, the Acts 15 choosing, and Acts 9 choosing, I don't even think that fits here. Okay? I think what fits here is choice, excellent, distinguished. They're distinguishing themselves between the others who are invited, the others who are called, who didn't obey. Uh, who chose to grumble, who chose to complain about what the Lord has done, what he's chosen to do. 
And if you want to know more about what the Lord has done and how the, the Jewish people complain against it, you read Romans 9. That's all about the Jewish people complaining. And, and God says, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. Who are you to complain against me? Who are you to claim to say to the potter what I should do? I've chosen to have mercy on Gentiles. I chose to have mercy on you. And, and, and in that Romans 9, we can look at it just for a second here. Even in Romans 9, he, he brings them back to this part where Moses was on the mount and we're talking about uh, Romans 9.17 here not Romans 9.15 I'm sorry that quote is from Exodus uh, 33.19 and this, the situation there is right before this, this is Moses speaking to God he gets put in the cleft rock, he wants to see his glory pass before him, he can only see the, the backside of his glory and um uh, right before that, Moses up on the mount, and the Israelites were down there making a golden calf, worshiping it, and God was angry and said, I'm going to destroy them, wipe them out, and make a nation out of you, Moses. He says, no, Lord, don't do that, don't do that. You know, and and what, he's bring, what, what God is bringing back to the Israelites through quoting what he quotes in verse 15, what Paul quotes in verse 15, is that he had mercy in Israelites, and they didn't deserve it. At that point in time, he spared them, even though he deserved the wrath and judgment of God, after all the things he had done for them, what did they do when Moses on the mount for 40 days? Just 40 days. They made a golden calf and they worshipped it. And so God will have mercy on whomever he has mercy and will harden on whoever he wants to harden. And so um, we see that God, if you read on in, in Romans 9, you'll see uh, in verse 24, this is like the, the crux of the passage here, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And he goes on to talk about calling people my people who are not my people. Uh, and so that that's really what he's discussing here. So Paul is constantly dealing with this issue. And Jesus dealt with this issue early on, I think, to give the disciples a precursor of what's to come. And um, But they didn't get the main point, as we'll see next week, when, they, when James and John's mother comes and asks a silly question. We'll see, they still didn't get it. They still didn't get what he was trying to tell them. That the first shall be last, and the last shall be first, and what their disposition should be. And uh, they shouldn't be prideful. And uh, just because they've given up all does not mean they deserve anything more than anyone else does. He did choose them as disciples. He picked them out. Uh, but it doesn't give them a greater, uh, a greater reward as far as them getting a, a better inheritance than part of someone else. Okay, um, Okay, I think that's about all I wanted to cover for today. Does anyone have anything they want to add or questions they have or objections? Could you go through one more and I'm going to like a 1 Peter 1, 2? Okay, 1 Peter 1, 2 um, is actually... And this is actually this is mostly the way most translations are. They'll have uh, elect in verse two, but in the Greek it's in verse one. Yeah, and so if you look up Young's literal, I don't know why they do this with the word order, uh, but Young's literal, uh, he says this in verse one: um, choice. He doesn't say pilgrims. Says choice sojourners, I believe. So choice actually goes before pilgrims in verse one. In fact, if I could show you here. Um, we can even pass this around. Let's see here. 
you can see in Second First Peter one one uh, on the second line there, the first word is eclectos, and you'll see the reference across from that. You won't see elect in it because it's referring to verse one. And so they don't. The people who are translating First uh, Peter, and this happens almost. I think every translation I've seen, uh, except for Young's literal, they don't have the word order properly here. So it really changes what it's saying here. And so, really, to say choice sojourners or choice pilgrims, those who are choice aliens, maybe those who don't belong to this place, they belong to a different kingdom, but they're sojourners, and they're choice. And so that's really uh, what it should be here. Choice pilgrims, and so that, that's that's really a mistranslation, if you ask me. And that's one of the main verses Calvin like to use for this issue. Um, but you you can look you can, we can maybe talk about this more um, at different times. This whole maybe do a whole study on eclectos and go through each one of these verses, and we can kind of because you know I think the context is going to determine what kind of translation you're going to give it. Okay, but I think as a whole, just like it was in the Old Testament. We should be using choice, excellent, those kind of words to describe. Uh, or, you know, it's a distinguishing word, a describing word, not a sorting out, picking, choosing word arbitrarily. That's not what it's meaning. Um, so ho- hopefully you can see that. I mean, we could, we could go through other ones too, but um, I haven't studied every single one. So, but, you know, we see this, these two words here. Uh, that we see in Matthew 20:16, they're also in Matthew 22:14, which we'll talk about, you know, in a few weeks. And also, uh, those two words are also found in Revelation 17:14. Uh, same two words are found in that passage too. And that that verse says, "These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with Him are called, chosen, and faithful." Okay. Uh, and I would think a better translation that would be they are invited, they are choice, and they are faithful. Because distinguishing between the enemies of God, who he just defeated, and the friends of God who are on his side. Okay? There's nothing in that scripture about picking and choosing. There's no reason we should put the word chosen there. Because it brings a lot of confusion for people. I mean, translate in that way. You know, chosen in that sense, or elect in that sense. And anyone who wants to look at this, I mean, I, if someone wants to have this, they can have it. I, I, I mean, I, I can print it out again at home. This is, this is every time kletos uh, is used, which is invitation or called, and this is every time that eklektos is used in the New Testament. So you, if you, anyone wants to look at it, they're willing to, you know, look at that. Yeah, yeah, be willing. It's just redefining of words. It really is. I mean, that's really, I've said it many times. I did a series, I have only done like three videos on it, called Calvinist Confusion. And one of the main foundations of Calvinism is the redefining of biblical words, imposing their own definition upon them. If you submit to their definition, you're going to become a Calvinist. If you submit to what they believe chosen means, elect means, uh, dead in sin means, nature means, what's that? Drag. Drag, what sovereignty means. 
If you submit to their definitions of these words, you're going to become a Calvinist because you're going to read your Bible through that filter and say, well, I can't get past this verse. And if you're going to be honest with yourself, you're not going to be able to get past that verse is you give them the Calvinist definitions. And so I, I think we should, maybe we should do a study on this or maybe the man can just sit around and talk about it, whatever. It's an important passage. This issue comes up on Facebook a lot. Right. And you put a little hint out there that there's free will involved and then the elect verses start coming. Right. Well, you can you can prove these kind of things with like we were defining things just by looking at old King James and they have the word uh, unicorn there. But if you look at the old definition of unicorn, it's a one-horned rhinoceros. Well, that makes sense. Our modern-day definition is superimposed right. on that. Makes you go like, well, that's safe. Um, can you send us those files? These are right here? Oh, these aren't files. These are just something I printed off of my Bible software. But I can print out more, more copies if you'd like. Yeah, that'd be okay. Or I might be able to export them as a PDF file and send those files. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, those are all the times that's found. And this, this study right here by Brother Jacques is just it's really good. I appreciate what he did here. What's that? Uh, 1.25 pounds. <laughs> So I, I don't remember. I bought it a long time ago. I'm not even sure if he has it in this form anymore. He might. But he has a whole book now says that's titled So You Think You're Chosen. He sent it to me a long time ago. I haven't, I haven't read it. But, um, yeah, I'm sure he wouldn't mind if you guys copied it. It's not very many pages. It's like, uh, I think it's 15 pages. So if you have, I mean, this could be one page right here. You know, I don't know how big that is. Yeah, so that's, that's a, a little bigger than a, a full page there. Lengthwise, it might be a 14-inch page. Yeah, so this this should fit, you know, with the have to just cut off the margins a little bit. But this has a lot of good stuff in it. He goes through the Hebrew word a little bit too. Um, and so I, I studied on this a lot this past week, but it's just too extensive a study to add on to what I've already talked about. And uh, but it's just he done really good. So I don't think I need to duplicate what he did. But this is a really good study. So I mean, if anyone wants to copy that too, I'm sure he wouldn't have a problem with that. I'll have the, uh, I would have it already, I think, the, uh, I ordered that stuff too again. Okay. But for some reason, my package went from Hebrew, Kentucky, to Grove City, Ohio, which is about 15 minutes where I used to live. That happens all the time to me. I don't know why. Every time you order through Amazon, yeah. even if it's in, like, I'll have something in, like, Campbellsville. Yeah. And it'll go up to Grove City, Ohio, and then come back down. That's the way it always works. Well, I got free shipping, so that's probably why. It was still... Yeah, that might be part like, of it. I was just like, why is it going that way? I might as well tell them to say that. I'll be there soon. Right. <laughs> But it's coming back down now. But it yes. has the Apocrypha and the Greek, and it shows all. It'll be nice to see all that. Sure. Yeah. That's a, uh, that's a Greek translation of the Septuagint with the Greek next to the English. Yeah, it's, it's a parallel. English and Greek next together. And is, is it Breton's translation? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's what I was looking at as I studied yeah. this I week. I figured it'd be a good resource for everybody. You can read it online, too, if yeah. you don't have the hard copy yourself, Breton's translation. I just, I hate, I don't like reading online, but I, I use online for quick, quick, uh, yeah, I prefer not to read online, too. Online. I prefer not to read online, too. I don't, I don't... I like to have the hardcover book, too. <laughs> would have had that already, I thought. But I was like, why are they going north? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anytime you pick free shipping, they're going to delay it a few days and make it as, as long as them. possible. Easy for them, yeah. I have a question. Doesn't, doesn't God refer to Israel as elect? Yeah. And then they... Uh, that, I think that would be a, a way that he actually picked them, because he did pick them from among the nations. Mm-hmm. And that's actually uh, in Romans. But okay. as you said... They're cut off. Yeah. Romans 11. Romans 9 shows, yeah, they were chosen before the foundation of the world. They yeah. chose that nation without any... any Ephesians 1. We talked about Ephesians 1. He, he, that, the distinguishing between the Jews and Gentiles in Ephesians 1, where it's the, it's the we, 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 and then you. 
and then it's us, you know. So we have this going back and forth, and the Jews were the chosen people. But just because they were chosen people does not mean all Jewish people are saved. Uh, and, and we'll see later on in Matthew as we go through the parables that I think it's in Matthew, maybe it's in Luke, that he says, I want to take the kingdom from you and give it to a nation bearing the fruits of it. So he took it from the Jewish nation. And they were, they were called. And uh, we talked about a couple weeks ago about the marriage, remarriage and divorce. So he divorced himself from them. Now he always gives them opportunity to come back as Romans 11 talks about. But he's, he's divorced himself from them. And so they're not his chosen ones anymore. So God has people from every tribe, tongue, and nation now, not just a physical nation for himself. And Romans 11 makes this clear. And this, this, ripping this out of this context of history, most people don't understand is what gives a lot of the problems. Because mm-hmm. we're not used to this Jew-Gentile issue over here. Yeah. Everybody's Gentile over here for the most part. Yeah. Yeah, we're used to a Calvinist, non-Calvinist yeah. thing. Yeah. Not a Jew-Gentile thing. Yeah. Which is very, it's very, very, lots of similarities. I mean, there's lots context, of spiritual yeah, pride going on there with, with Calvinists. I'm not saying there isn't any spiritual pride on the other side of time, but I've just experienced it so many times with Calvinists, the spiritual pride. Not that all of them are like that, yeah, yeah. but uh, just so many of them are like that. And, uh, yeah. it's, it relates a lot to the situation, unfortunately. Where was that? That's in uh, like, like in Second Timothy one. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I I've said that word before. Let me see here. There's another place in Acts where there Gentiles, as many were appointed to believe, were believed, or to believe. Appointed as a preacher, as a teacher. Second Timothy one. What verse is that, brother? I think verse eleven. A preacher and apostle, yeah. Yeah, I think that's the same word used as to appoint uh, elders and churches here. Yeah. Let's see here. That's what I was thinking. It goes along with choice. Right. So it, there's there's an appointment of the people. God, in this case, with, with Paul, he was appointed by God, but there's still a choice in his matter. And when elders are chosen, there's still a choice in the elders' matter. I mean, if, if someone wanted you to be an elder of the church and you didn't want to, it's not going to happen. Right. That's all there is to it. Um, so we, we we can talk about that some more too. It, it might be good to maybe I'll, maybe next week I can I can pray about this see what the Lord leads me to do. Maybe I'll uh, do a study on some of these words next week. Or, oh, you won't be here. Oh, that's right. You're going to be gone. He'll huh? be here. Maybe maybe I'll wait till the week after that. Uh, <coughs> but um, yeah, so this this uh, it's an important issue to talk about, and so I'm just I'm trying to stick to Matthew as much as I possibly can. But I, I think it's good to deter sometimes to. Or detour sometimes, not deter, detour sometimes to talk about these issues. But it's obvious that in verse 16, Jesus didn't have in mind what the Calvinists had in mind. That much is obvious. Uh, same thing with Matthew 22, verse 14, which we'll talk about, I don't know, probably three or four weeks from now. Uh, didn't have that in mind there either. And so to impose on it is, is really to commit eisegesis, not exegesis.
Yeah, I mean, the Septuagint, the way they've translated this word over and over and over again, it just shows us that that's the way it's meant to be used for the most part. And then you go to the Hebrew word that's now being used behind our translations. It means that, that word means the same thing as choice, excellent, most times. And so that's the way it should be used. And that's the way, I, I think the context will determine more than anything. Because it can be used as chosen, not arbitrary, arbitrarily choosing, as a Calvinist God does, but it can mean chosen as far as picked out. But the context is going to determine that. And so as we go through, if we decide to go through these verses in the New Testament, I think the context is going to determine it. Uh, is there a word we can uh, come to about arbitrarily choosing? No. I, I can't, I mean, I, God doesn't do that. <laughs> my, my perspective, I, I can't think of any that, that says he does that. I mean, I guess you could say that God arbitrarily chose the Jewish people. Doesn't give a reason why he chose Abraham. Doesn't give a reason, like, as far as why him besides instead of someone else. Doesn't say that. But even then, when he did choose them, it did not mean that all Abraham's descendants are going to be saved. Even though they're part of the chosen people. So that's the only thing I could think of that would that would would mean that. I don't know what the Greek or Hebrew word is there. Um, <clears throat> but that's the only thing I can think of. Grace. Uh, right. And he, say, he says in Genesis 7 1 why he chose it. Because you're different. Yeah. Right. You're, you're, I've seen you're righteous before me in this world. So. And that's what you see in every every Christian. He's decided to give grace to those who decide to be in Christ. That's who he's decided to give grace to. That's God's decision. He's not going to back down from a decision. This one I will look, right? Yeah. Right. Right. He will choose that. That's right. Yeah. But he doesn't choose that person to be that way. No. They choose to be that way or not. Yeah. That's the difference. It's complicated because of these definitions. I'm, I'm telling you, man, so many people buy into what sovereignty means from the Calvinist point of view. Uh, they buy into what chosen means, what elect means. Uh, you know, that they buy into these things, what dead means, and so they just. And I even had a guy, you know, post on my on my video Hitler and Calvinism. He said, uh, Calvinists do believe in, in free will. They just believe that their will is in bondage to their nature. That our nature is that way because of what Adam did, and God ordained and God ordained the fall. Okay, so whose fault is it then? Did we really have free will? Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what Calvin says. That's what I tried though. That's like I told you in that one guy's video. I tried to confront him and I got blocked. But we started saying, "Do you believe in sovereignty? You're a Calvinist." I don't believe in the way you define it. I'm not a Calvinist. Yeah. So if 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 you can get get someone to buy into his death, and that's what this guy has done, you know. I think that video really gotten to a lot of people. It's really showed the, the truth of what they believe in a consistent form. It, it, it really it really has almost taken a lot of my videos on consistent Calvin to kind of combine them into one. With Hitler going back and forth. It's just, yeah. Says God ordained the fall, yeah. and the other group says, "Oh no, God just knew that that was going to happen." 
That's an Arminian perspective, though. I mean, soteriology wise, because if they think sovereignty means that God is micromanaging, controlling all things, ordaining all things whatsoever come to pass, and I don't know any Calvinist who won't say that. If he's ordaining all things, therefore he must have ordained the fall. If he didn't ordain the fall, according to your definition of sovereignty, now your God is not sovereign anymore. So they have a problem if they're going to say that within their. I mean, what's happening, I think, is that they have a conscience still, and it's bothering them because they don't want God to be the author of sin. I mean, who does? If you're really, if you're really a Christian, you don't want that. You don't want to malign God's character. You love God. You don't want to, you know, blaspheme Him in any way. And so their conscience is bothering them. And praise God, it is because they haven't become consistent yet. Hopefully, their conscience will override their theological viewpoint, and they'll change their theological viewpoint. But they're not being consistent. And if they're consistent, they must say God has ordained the fall too, because God ordains all things. Whatsoever comes to bad. That means all things. That, that quote right there, that comes directly from... The Westminster Ca- Catechism. Confession of Faith. Westminster Confession of Faith. In fact, you just type in, God ordains all things whatsoever come to pass on Google. It probably it's it's in several catechisms, not just the Westminster one, several ones. Let's try to say it at the same time. He ordains everything, but he's not the author. Of sin. Yeah, they'll, they'll and then they'll say after that, but in such a way where he's not the author of sin. So, See, so even the people who are writing it, their conscience was bothering them. They would say in such a way, such a way that he's not the author of sin. God ordains everything that can, whatsoever comes to pass. Whatsoever comes to pass. Not the author of sin. Any kind of logic, yeah. So, so this is back to something me and Sean have been talking about: is that uh, Calvinism? They they proclaim that they are the foundation for presuppositional apologetics, which talks about logic a lot of times. And so, I'll use logic to say, well, what's your foundation for uh, the law of non-contradiction? That you know, two things can't be can't have the two different answers to the same equation in the same sense. And they say, well, it's, it's God being logical. Logic is a reflection of God's mind. Well, if logic is a reflection of God's mind, and in our world, as humans, we're logical because God has made us that way. And I say, well, Malachi, I'm going to take your hand, I'm going to put a knife in it, and I'm going to take your hand and make you kill someone with it. And I say, well, Malachi, it was your fault. That No one would call that logical. That would not fly in a court of law. But if, if that's a reflection of God's mind, if our logic that we're using in the situation is a reflection of God's mind, then isn't God, God would be logical, and therefore that couldn't be true, that he's the ordainer of all things, and yet not be the author of sin. Because it's not logical. That's so, because it's true that, uh, like Dr. Bond said, he's, he's a Calvinist. Yes, oh, big time. And, but he teaches. He oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. He, him and Van, his teacher, Van Til, are the ones who made it popular. Yeah. yeah. But they're always inconsistent. Like I said, I ran into, you'll see this everywhere. You'll, you'll find a guy who say, you're a sinner, or wait, you sin because you're a sinner, instead of the way around. It's like, when do you ever call somebody a murderer before they murder? Right. It's never, you know that's not logical, so why do you... Well, God knew that they were going to murder, so... They were going to murder. Yeah. Well, he didn't just know, he ordained it. Yeah, but they're just illogical everywhere. You know that's not true. Believing him knowing doesn't make him a murderer. Right, right. Knowing about it does not make you a murderer, but, but making someone do it makes you the makes you the murderer, yeah. not that person. They're just an object in your hand. They're just an instrument. So interesting 
I saw it the other day. I remember hearing this night. I forgot about it for a while, but it's kind of off topic. It's just it's like how the Pharisees understood when after, after Jesus healed that guy on the Sabbath and John 9 at the end, they, they said to the guy who was telling them, this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him and said, you're completely born in sin. You're teaching us. Right. The Pharisees telling him he's born in sin. Right. Because he was lame from birth. Right. Right. And the very thing that Jesus, Jesus John answered John 9, 33 and 34. The disciples asked him, well, why is this man lame from birth? Because his parents are not going to no one said. For the glory of God. Mm-hmm. Sure does. 